Hello and welcome to the 206 podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make them. My name is Mark Morin and today I'm speaking with Miss Ramona Diaz, the director of an award-winning documentary called A Thousand Cuts, which has been playing in film festivals and virtual cinemas throughout the year. Ramona, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, A Thousand Cuts is a very important film for a lot of different reasons. For those who haven't watched it, what is the basic outline of the film and why was this an important story for you to tell? So the film really is about all the issues of our time, but really, or the prevalent um, issues of our time. So it is about press freedom, uh, the dangers of losing an independent free press and how that's related to democracy and how all that is related to disinformation, right? As told through the eyes of one journalist, one very renowned journalist called Maria Ressa. So that's really, uh, that's what the film is about. It's about authoritarianism, the rise of authoritarianism. And I thought it was important well, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to stories because of characters, really. And um, while I was drawn back to go back, you know, I, I make films about the Philippines. So this is like my fifth feature documentary. You know, I always go back to the Philippines to make stories. And I was drawn back there to because of the drug war, of the, mm. the President Duterte's drug war. But when I got to the ground, I found out everyone was drawn to that story. There were a lot of people on the ground making that film. So I decided to look around, you know, and uh, there was Maria Ressa and Rappler, not only talking, they were questioning the, the numbers of dead in the drug war. They're questioning um, the uh, president's impunity uh, over the drug war and also connecting all of that to the weaponization of social media and disinformation. So I thought it was just a more global story. It's, it's still very specifically the Philippines, obviously, but it transcends it because it's, it's global. As you know, we're, uh, I mean, in this country, we're dealing with disinformation. Right. Every country, I think, that comes across, uh, that uses uh, social media platforms is a victim of it. Just like you're saying, there are obvious parallels between Duterte's politics and what we've been dealing with here in America. Now, A Thousand Cuts has also become very timely, given everything that 2020 has meant to America, to the Philippines, and like you said, to the entire world. Do you look at the film differently now compared to when you first set out to take on this project? Most definitely. And that's the beauty of documentary. And I, that's why I think I make documentaries. Um, you really don't know where it's going to take you, at least the way I make them. They're very immersive. It's life lived in front of the lens. So it, you're always, I always say I'm, I'm sort of at the, you know, at the edge of the, <laughs> of the abyss, right? What's going to yeah. happen next? And I, I guess that's why I love the process. Definitely. It looked like um, I wasn't thinking of press freedom when I started doing this. I was really t uh, thinking about dictatorships. And, you know, I was raised under martial law in the Philippines. I came to wow. this country as a teenager to go to school, to go to um, university. So I, I know what that feels like. So when President Duterte, you know, was elected into office, it felt like um, regressive in a way. For me, it, it seemed like uh, this is going back to a time that was really very dark for the Philippines. Because he, he was promising, uh, I mean, at some point, even before, before he was elected, he said he, it was going to be a dictatorship. Or, wow. And he did, he did run on the drug war, you know, on, the, uh, on fighting this drug war. He campaigned on it. So I, I just felt it was something that was very regressive happening there. That's what drew me back. That, that it became this film is because of the process of things opening up and me just following where the story really 
took me, you know. And like I said, I'm very, I'm very drawn to characters. And I thought mm-hmm. Maria Ressa, like she, she's like a gift from the gods, <laughs> right? From the documentary gods. You're like, oh my god, because she's very articulate. She, mm-hmm. the, the camera loves her, you know, and she explains. She's very articulate both about about what's happening to her and the problems, the bigger problems, mm-hmm. issues that I'd never seen before. I'd, I'd never heard it explained that clearly. Speaking of Maria, uh, she's the co-founder of its Rappler as the news source that she's she's a part of. Uh, one thing I thought that was really interesting is there's a very much an opposition between her and Duterte, but they can also sit down and have a conversation like face to face. It seemed like a very strange dynamic to me that you captured really well. I guess what my question is, what was it like for you to be able to have access to those face to face conversations and then also at the same time, like Maria never knew when she was going to get arrested. It seemed like it was just such a weird dynamic between those two people. So to go back to um, Maria being the opposition, you know, she's not the opposition. She she always likes to be clear about that. She is a journalist, right? She so basically, she seems like the opposition because there is no strong opposition. So and also because be, once she got arrested, as she talks about it, she says this all the time. Once she got arrested, she became the story because her rights, she felt her rights were trampled, and then she felt unshackled in terms of speaking out for her own rights, because now she was being, um, you know, she was a story now. So she felt like she had to speak on her behalf, uh, not on behalf of Rappler, on her behalf. So it's, it, yeah, she, she, she's just re- very clear that always she were here. She said, no, no, I'm not the opposition. I'm a journalist. We, we, we just write about, you know, the impunity. Also, um, the scenes where she sits down with Duterte, that's all, um, unfortunately, that's all news footage because that was before I started covering her. Okay. I started covering her. We really started shooting the film in 2018. And those uh, those interviews happened before he became president, when he was running in late 2015, and right after he became president, which was oh, okay. uh, like in, uh, I guess, June. Oh, no, right before. He was already running. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Right before and then right after. So okay. that was late 2015 and then 2016. So their relationship changed over those several years then, it sounds like. Yes, because I think there was an expectation in de- uh, on President Duterte's part that because she was friendly, because, you know, in a way, Rappler gave um, then-candidate Duterte a lot of attention, mm. right, that other outlets were not. Because I right. think they took him seriously. They saw that he, that he had a chance, right? Everyone thought he was just an outsider. But they thought, oh, this guy might have a chance. So they, they did actually give him a, you know, pay him attention. And because of that, I think he was surprised that in his mind, they turned against him, but they didn't. They just reported right. both sides, right? But in his mind, but that is the Philippines. Everything in the Philippines is sort of very personal mm-hmm. uh, at this personal levels. And also he was mayor of a small town, not a small town, you know, a, a fairly sized town. But it was local. Uh, it was used to dealing with local media mm-hmm. as opposed to the national media. And in, in the, suddenly it was in the capital dealing with national media. It's very different. Yeah, definitely. The documentary itself has a very intimate feel to it when it comes to your coverage, especially of Maria. And there's just a real comfort level. Like there's some scenes, you know, like a hotel room scene with her sister, different scenes like that. Like how do you build trust in those relationships to where you can have those really brilliant moments like that, where it's like, you're not even there. Time, 
you know um i spend a lot of time with the people i'm filming also my expectation is i don't get the trust immediately and i know i have to earn it because there is no reason that they should trust me they shouldn't right <laughs> that she did was lovely and great and i'm thankful but i i find that nothing beats time nothing beats just hanging out there were many times where i was i just hung out with her without the crew without a camera i always say the times i spend with the people i film without a crew and not filming them is as important as the time that i am with them and filming them right. because it just builds this i need to earn their trust and i think what i need them to understand in order for for the relationship to work is that i'm not reality television you know mm. i'm not out for the gotcha moment i'm not out to I film them behaving badly or catching right. something salacious. It's not that I really am very very interested in behavior, real behavior, genuine behavior. Mm-hmm. How people act in times of duress. I usually come into people's lives when their lives are turning or you know, mm-hmm. watershed moments in their lives. Like right. my previous film was about uh, the lead singer of Journey as he was becoming famous, as he was yeah. becoming, uh, so I, I like those moments. They're very sensitive moments. and very important obviously so I, i know i need to tread slowly oh that's great it's a great way to to approach it you know as a filipino filmmaker you are known for your documentaries centered on the philippines as you mentioned which are mostly i've noticed about women as well with maria ressa and imelda marcos for example was that something that you set out to do as a filmmaker or did it just sort of happen based on the opportunities presented to you I think the 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 latter, right? Because um well, Arnel Pineda, right? The lead singer of Journey is uh, right. clearly <laughs> clearly in that space a very um a very, you know, male rock star, right? Mm-hmm. And I I had a it just happens. Obviously, right before A Thousand Cuts I did Motherland, which is about mothers and reproductive health rights. And right after Imelda, I did a film about teachers, the learning, which uh, I actually had men in there. I followed some male teachers, but they felt they fell away because they weren't as easy to trust me. You know, I mean, they didn't come around as easily as the women. They were more guarded, you know, and they, they, they couldn't let the guard down even months into the school year. So at some point I had to realize, okay, I was left with like four women, but that, it's not. I guess also because I'm female so I'm drawn to those characters. I'm I'm drawn to women who are very empowered and on the other hand women who are very disempowered. I like to look at power and disempowerment. So who inspires you as a filmmaker? <gasps> so many. Uh, um <laughs> oh gosh, um Frederick Wiseman for sure in terms of that verite, you know, immersive verite kind of filmmaking. I can only tell you inspirations per film, right? So mm. say a thousand cuts, really I had really imagined it as a very Robert Altman-esque kind of film actually, uh, yeah. where and there were a lot of ensemble, you know, just an ensemble cast, mm-hmm. cast of characters, and Maria was just one of them. Um so and the capital Manila was sort of like Los Angeles in shortcuts, right? And then right, there was right. pesticide that they were fighting and I saw metaphorically as the administration as a pesticide that they were all trying to overcome. Uh, or, or the f- flies, the, the, the flies, right? And then they, oh, they right, were right, spraying right. pesticide over the, over the city of Los Angeles. You would hear the helicopters going on at all times. I'm very drawn to science fiction, like um, uh, Blade Runner. I love Blade Runner. 
I like um, Sans Soleil, which is um, Chris Marker. Uh, what else? Um, gosh, there, there's so many. I have so many. <laughs> I think the film that really started me on this path of filmmaking was a uh, Francois Truffaut film. Not wow. even his most celebrated, right? Mm. It was uh, it was Day for Night, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Day for Night is yeah. a movie within a movie. And it is a process of making the movie. Mm. So I saw this and I thought, oh my God, it seems so fun. <laughs> and kind of this kind of romantic fun. I said, that's what I want to do. It seemed like, I was very young when I saw it, but I saw it as like this sort of camp for grown-ups, right? That I was drawn to it. I'm like, I, I think I want to do that. That looks like so much fun. So it was really process I was drawn to. Mm. And then obviously story, but really the process of making it. And that's still what I love. I love shooting. I love being out there. I love discovering where the story is taking me. It's also sure. a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Now, who has been a big influence on you that's not a filmmaker in your career? That is not a filmmaker. Right. Wow, I have to think of that. Um, <laughs> a lot of writers, you know. I read a lot of memoirs. I just I, I just read Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Spaces again. I don't know if you've ever read his short, short piece. Ferrantes inspired me of late because I've, I've been reading all her four books. I'm also trying to put together a series for television. Oh, really? So um, a lot of, um, which is, sort of a part history, part reimagined history. So I'm reading a lot of, uh, of uh, historical fiction. Yeah, that's, but a lot of writers, um, artists inspire me. Um, you know, the, the old the old artists and canons and stuff. I, I, yeah, I just do a lot of, especially in pandemic, I've been doing a lot of reading <laughs> and watching, you know. Yeah, definitely. Now, speaking of the pandemic, this year for cinema has been completely different obviously with, without being able to go into theaters in most places. Getting back to the movie, A Thousand Cuts, what's been the reaction like from audiences, given the fact that you're not able to be there in a theater during a film festival presentation? Like, like what's that experience been like for you this year? You know, um, both good and bad, believe it. I mean, there are several linings. We're getting in front of a lot more eyeballs, right? There are more eyeballs in the film, definitely, because we can stay in virtual the virtual world really forever. But obviously, as a filmmaker, I, I get my energy from the audience, right? I get the, my energy from going into a theater, buying my popcorn, sitting there, <laughs> and honestly, and sort of feeling the film with an audience. I miss that. I miss talking to them after and figuring out, oh, what, what worked, what didn't work, or just the in the live Q&As. I think there's a difference between, I, I've done a lot of virtual Q&As, but I don't know who's in the room, really. Right. I love knowing who's in the room, right? And feeling the, that energy, the vibe of the q and I, I so miss that. I also miss the community of documentary filmmakers who usually, uh, when you, you know, as the year unfolds, you really travel. You're like a traveling band. <laughs> you know, uh, throughout the throughout the year, you travel right. with the same filmmakers because the same films are more or less the same films are in in the festivals. So it's this group of filmmakers that you see in every place, and there's a lovely feeling of community that comes with that. Right. And, and I truly that I truly truly miss. But it's been you know, it's amazing how much. Um, really necessity is a mother of invention. It's amazing how film festivals have been able to create something, you know, this oh, yeah. virtual space. And uh, it's not going to be the same, but I don't think um, 
I think we are going to have those live audiences again, but I think it, it'll never be like it has in the past. I think this kind of hybrid, uh, a hybridity with virtual and real, that mixture, that hybridity will always be there. I think that right. will be created because on the other hand, a lot of people who can't travel to the festivals because they're pricey, you know, if you don't have right. resources are, are able to participate in the talkbacks, in the panels, in even the screenings. That's amazing. That's really quite something. So that's the best part of it, right? I don't think that festivals will let go of that best part, but reclaim what was really wonderful about festivals, the, the physical, physically being there. Yeah, that's one thing that's always drawn you know, me to the you know the local film festival here in Seattle and other ones I've been able to attend is just exactly like you said. I think the key word there that you mentioned was community. You know, community of filmmakers, community of film fans, you know, my own community of film critics. It's irreplaceable. So I'm glad that there are some ways that you're still enjoy able to enjoy that in a virtual sense. And you're right, film festivals themselves, they're every single film festival I see this year seems to find a new way to adapt just a little bit further. And it's really going to be interesting to me to see how the next year plays out and how film festivals continue to adapt because you really just cannot replace that emotional experience. And just in general, when it comes to watching movies, I'm all about how we connect to them emotionally. What do you want people to feel after watching this film? You know, I'm not very... Um prescriptive when it comes to messages or how you feel. How you feel is how you feel. I think it's very different for everyone. It depends on what you come with. It, it depends on your own lived experience, what you come mm. with. So what you feel is the appropriate way to feel. <laughs> um, what the, any message you get, if you get a message, it's the appropriate message to get. Mm -hmm. I think uh, what I see as my job is really to give you an experience of something that you would otherwise not experience. And hopefully, you know, enjoy that, not, not enjoy, but be immersed in that experience for mm -hmm. 90 minutes, right? right? You're giving me time for 90 minutes. And that's, I think, my job, to let you feel what it's like to be someone else for 90 minutes, or mm -hmm. many people for 90 minutes, in this case, right. because I have other characters. Yeah, that, that's all I'm, I hope to do. And I think that's, you know, I'm not, but that my films are used for other things, that if um, for social impact and all that, if they're used for that, I'm totally down with it, right? right? But my intention always as a filmmaker is to give you, is to tell you a tale. Like, come on this journey with me, I'll tell you something. Oh my God, this is what just, I just experienced, <laughs> come. And hopefully it's interesting enough for people to, to join you on the ride. Right. No, that's great. Yeah, it really is all about experiences. So yeah, I'm glad you take that approach to it to let people get what they're going to get out of it. That's that's outstanding. Now, Ramona, I could talk to you all day, but on my list here, I've actually run out of questions. So I, oh, think, wow. we're gonna, I think we're going to wrap things up here in a moment. But uh, do you have any any last thoughts about the film or what you want people to get out of the film? No, you know, it's just um, it's um, it's become very timely. That's something you can I don't ever plan for because you know I'm not. Right. They're thinking, oh, in whatever, we started in 2018. In 2020, this would really be <laughs> No, you don't ever. You Like I said, I'm drawn to characters and story and what intrigues me. And the hope is if it, I'm always my first audience in a way. If it surprises me, intrigues me, and, and I'm drawn to the characters, I'm hoping that a whole slew of the audience will be as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Ramona, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and thank you for making this documentary. You know, it was a pleasure and it's my honor to have you on the podcast today. So thanks for being here. Oh yeah, yeah. Before, um, also, if you want to watch it, it's still on in virtual cinema. So if they go to the website, um, a thousand cuts dot film. Oh yeah. So www a thousand cuts dot film. It'll lead you to um, to where you can watch it in virtual cinema. Perfect. Thank you. And that was actually the next thing on my little script here. So thank you for oh, putting that out there. So yeah, you're you're one step ahead of me, just like you're one step ahead of, of the world with your documentary. So oh, thank, thank you. you for mentioning that. So and since it's on my script, I'm gonna repeat it just to make sure people get the message. A thousand cuts is now available to watch in virtual cinemas, and it is still being featured in film festivals as well. Uh, where you can go is to a thousand cuts.film to see how you can watch it today. This is the 206 podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make them. Please subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your friends. Any way you can support the podcast is very much appreciated. You can find podcast episodes and all of my movie reviews on 206.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mark Morin on the 206 podcast.